As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I have to say I'm a little disappointed that we haven't had much take-up of your um, why are cold sausages more delicious debate that you threw open to the listeners last week. Have we not been overwhelmed? No, I I don't think there has been any response to it whatsoever at all, which I think probably puts the kibosh on your potential career as an LBC host stirring up debate. Well, you think that, you mean, because it's the kind of thing you might say, today we're talking about cold sausages <laughs> and why they're better than warm sausages. Have you exactly. got views? And what you think, maybe it's just, do you think it's just a bad choice of topic? Actually, Joel has just messaged to say we've had one tweet about it. Oh, overwhelmed. This is, this is from Shan, I stand corrected. And Shan yes. says... Hard agree with Ed Miliband's thoughts on cold sausages discussed on Cheerful Podcast. I would add a cold-boiled egg to the list of contenders. They're just better. That's well, ma- a really good point about the cold-boiled egg. I like a cold-boiled egg myself. Maybe Shan has single-handedly revived this debate. Which uh, I've, I've got a I've got a debate that I'd like to stir up. Go on. If my wife is in the kitchen, FaceTiming with a friend, and then I go into the kitchen, am I obliged to stick my head in front of the camera and say hello to her friend? Is it a friend you know or not? Yeah. I think obliged is too strong. All right. Is it rude of me to not put my head in front of the camera and say hello? I think it's all about context. I don't think I'm going to be judgmental on this. Okay. It's not not quite the resounding endorsement. Some people... The whole act of sort of engagement with people is just quite a big effort. Yes. And therefore, I think maybe allowances have to be made. Great. When I'm reporting this back to Sarah, I'm just going to take that part of the conversation out of context <laughs> and, and say that to her. Now, look, I'm quite now obsessed with this cold water swimming thing. Mm. i tell you what I think is really um, interesting, which is that it appears, it appears that... And we want, don't want to sort of, you don't want to kind of 
go too far on this, but basically research has been done over the last few years with regular swimmers of London's Parliament Hill Lido or Lido, which is a subject of debate in itself. And they believe that it may protect the brain, cold water swimming, from degenerative diseases like dementia. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, it is quite, you know, it's not the reason that I started doing this cold water swimming, but, but it basically, there's this, um, particular protein called RBM3, which appears to be some kind of protection, uh, against dementia. And again, I think this is all sort of early days, but, but, but it was, it was started with an experiment on mice. And then this researcher wanted some volunteers and got these Parliament Hill Lido people or Lido people to volunteer. And indeed, they do have markedly elevated levels of RBM3, um, which the Tai Chi control group, not that I've got anything against Tai Chi, uh, didn't have. Wow. Do you think you might ever come one day and do it with me? No, no, absolutely not. No, 17 17 Celsius is is my absolute minimum for swimming. So should we talk about what we're talking about? Yeah. This week we're talking about what makes social movements successful. The Black Lives Matter protests this year are thought to be the biggest demonstrations in American history, with tens of millions of people taking part in the US alone. And as we discussed in May, they've prompted the biggest discussion about police violence and racism for a generation. More widely, Black Lives Matter has come at a time when protest movements are on the rise around the world. A study at the end of last year suggested that we may be in the midst of the largest wave of nonviolent mass movements in world history. So we'll be exploring the strategy of these movements and how they translate activism into political change. First, we're talking to Diva Woodley, who's written a lot about how Black Lives Matter has shifted the political conversation, particularly in the U.S., and then to Hari Han, who runs a research institute looking at how successful social movements achieve their goals. And we've got a fantastic, cheerful person this week. You will have seen his videos, which have become famous the world over. Uh, the man in the room next door. I know your kids are particular fans of Very his. excited, very excited, yeah. He's a bona fide phenomenon. Uh, and we're delighted to have Michael Spicer as our guest, as our cheerful person. What's your reason to be cheerful? I watched a really good documentary. Um, are you aware of, or have we talked about one of my favourite film directors, Roy Anderson? Vaguely, but have you yeah. seen a film called A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence? Nope. He's this Swedish film director. He makes these incredibly—they're brilliant films. They're, they're sort of short vignettes about life, and they're very, very stylized. They—they they almost look like paintings, and they're very dry, sometimes bleak often very funny um and he's got a new one it should have been out in cinemas already but because of the pandemic it's been delayed anyway a british filmmaker got access to him uh, during the making of this film and has made a fantastic documentary called being a human person he's this real artist this real craftsman but also about the the people who work with him and the ways in which that can be challenging. It's a it's a brilliant documentary. I watched it on Saturday and enjoyed it so much. I watched it again on Sunday with Sarah. What's your reason to be cheerful? So my reason to be cheerful, I think you and I have talked about Steve Peters before, have we? I'm not sure. Steve Peters as in the Oh, I know I know exactly who you mean. I know exactly yeah. 
Yes, we have talked anyway, about Steve Peters. And he, he I, I know Roddy O'Sullivan, the snooker player, a bit, and uh, he, sw- he thinks Steve Peters is absolutely brilliant. Anyway, I started reading Steve Peters' book called The Chimp Paradox. Yes. And honestly, I would really strongly recommend it to you. I mean, it is really it, look, the central argument is basically that we all have for these chimps um, because of evolution, uh, and that often when we react in ways that we don't necessarily want to to events, it's not the human, it's the chimp, and it's how do you? I don't think you would say control, but how do you? How do you kind of reconcile? deal with your chimp and honestly i i I think it's sold some like or more than a million copies so lots of people will have heard of it i was quite struck that you know i think when i was growing up these kind of issues about your feelings and how you deal with your feelings and all that would have just been sort of totally swept under the carpet and i think it is really good that people like steve both for adults and for children are sort of writing this stuff because I think it's incredibly enlightening and it sort of helps you make sense of things that you feel, anxiety you feel or other things that you feel, you know, which you can't really put a name to or put an explanation to apart from I'm feeling anxious. And I would really strongly, strongly recommend The Chimp Paradox. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Diva Woodley, who is Associate Professor of Politics at the New School in New York and the author of the upcoming book, Reckoning, Black Lives Matter and the Democratic Necessity of Social Movements. Diva, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for your invitation. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We're excited to talk to you. We, we're, we're fans of your writing. And I, I guess um, the best place to begin is by asking you, as somebody who studies social movements, talk, talk to us about the scale and the impact of Black Lives Matter compared to movements of the past and, and what the big differences are. The Movement for Black Lives, which is the kind of umbrella uh, term and umbrella organization for all of the autonomous organizations who work uh, for the cause of Black liberation in this time, um, has been enormous in its scale. And we saw the sort of enormity of its reach this past summer um, in the months of June and July as between 25 and 30 million Americans came into the streets Um, an explicit defense of Black lives. The thing is, is that we don't have recorded numbers on the actual kind of um, numbers of people who were out in the streets in the 1960s. But of the numbers that we have of how populated the largest marches were in the 1960s, um, this movement in terms of size of demonstrations seems to be an order of magnitude bigger. So it's a huge uh, movement in terms of scale um, when measured in in demonstration, but it's also been extremely influential on um, the public discourse of the United States and really um, on global public discourse about race and racial justice. With that being said, um, this movement also explicitly learns from um, the previous movements. Um, This movement is, um, unlike 20th century movements, not a rights-focused movement, meaning that it's not sort of pinning the scope of its need for transformation on, um, you know, we want the same rights as other people. Instead, they're making an argument that we need to conceive of politics in a different way, um, and that it's it's not only about the rights that people formally have, but actually what people's lived experience is like 
and whether or not people are actually enabled to do the things that they're supposed to have a right to. In the case of Black Lives Matter, it's just to live, right? <laughs> to live and thrive um, is the kind of basis of the movement. I think that's partly why it's been so resonant, honestly, um, is because it kind of shifts the conversation, less kind of focused on who has what rights? Um, is it true that that you don't have the right to do this? Or um, even though you, you have worse life outcomes, um, you still have these rights. Like this movement has kind of shifted the discussion away from that and says like, look, we have the evidence, the material evidence of a huge different in lived experiences. And that's actually where we have to base our politics. Can you talk to us about w- why it's had such a big impact and and how it's been able to shift the political conversation. Yes, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And this is one of the things that made me start writing the book on this movement is because I thought um, in 2014 that people were missing the genius of the social movement that was sort of forming (laughs) at that moment. Um, And so one of the things about this movement that makes it different than other kinds of movements is that from the beginning, people who came to that moment um, were determined to make this into more than just an uprising about one particular case and were interested in forming a cultural movement. That is a movement that was aimed in the first place was to change people's political understandings about what constitutes justice in the United States. Um, And the reason it's been able to have such a big impact is because using um, that kind of framing of this is actually about justice, this is about, um, you know, whether or not we have a right to live. That was something that the movement wanted to do from the very beginning, so that it wasn't about an isolated case, but was instead able to make a very broad argument about the ways that institutions uh, target Black people for demise. In, in your career, you, um, you you study the rhetoric of movement movements. And how how has the movement for Black Lives changed the language of politics in the United States? Um, So profoundly. I mean, just last night uh, during the American presidential debates, um, you heard the language not only of race, which occasionally crops up all the time, considering um, the American case is is fundamentally characterized um, by uh, um, questions of race and racial oppression and white supremacy. Uh, But also you hear this language of institutional racism, right? And structural racism. These are terms that of course are very familiar to academics um, and certain kinds of left progressives, but were not at all a part of popular or mainstream discourse um, before this movement inserted them right into our popular understanding of what political problems we have uh, and what kinds of remedies we'll have to consider, right? In order to, um, you know, change things right for the better i mean the thing that strikes me diva in all this is the black lives matter movement has given if you like provided a frame and an explanation for what lots of people are seeing Mm -hmm. in reality so so you know the killing of, of of george floyd 
you know, if it had happened seven years ago, mm-hmm. okay, it would have been seen as a, you know, a, a sort of terrible event, but somehow it wouldn't have had a frame. It, it, is that, am I, am I right to think that, that the Black Lives Matter movement has given that, you know, has, has provided that sense of a, of a bigger narrative to people? You're completely right. Um, and that has been, um, in some instances, in some ways, it's the largest contribution, because although there have been many policy successes, actually, and I expect those to, to accelerate, um, honestly, uh, of the movement, the biggest thing the movement has done is provide a framework for what we actually are seeing. Um, and, and part of that is uh, the, the experience that people live, but part of it is also how to interpret all of these sort of viral videos of Black people being harassed, um, you know, for going about their normal lives, uh, but also brutally, um, you know, terrorized and killed. And that has been really deliberate. Like the movement has been very dodged in terms of centering, um, you know, black lives and then also the most marginal black lives in its explanation, right? Just the kind of phrase Black Lives Matter was seen in 2014, 2015 as controversial, right? And was answered with this phrase, all lives matter. And the movement under, undertook a very large public, um, you know, education campaign, basically to say, yeah. no, we have to say that Black Lives Matter because Black Lives, right, are, are the ones that are being targeted for demise. Um, and so you see this wonderful proliferation in social media, uh, but also in people's conversations. You can see this in survey work, like short answers in survey work, where people slowly come to understand, oh, like this phrase, Black Lives Matter, means Black Lives Matter too. And the reason we have to say that is because otherwise we're ignoring um, the phenomena. Right. Uh, and so you have all these fantastic kind of memes where, where, where people give examples of like, imagine you're at Thanksgiving with your family and everyone is given a slice of turkey and you're not given a slice of turkey. Um, and you say, hey, my slice of turkey matters, too. And then the person who's giving out slices of turkey says, all turkey slices matter. Um, so you see this kind of popular education happening. And that's a debate that the movement for Black Lives won. Right. Because, you know, um, five years after Colin Kaepernick is kicked out of the NFL uh, for kneeling in defense of black lives in the summer of 2020, performative or not, you have every major corporation, you know, kind of making a statement about their support of black lives. That's an enormous transformation in a relatively short period of time. And it's all because of the movement's clear, consistent, resonant um, you know, framing of this problem and the refusal to let race slip out of the frame, right? It's also the case that the empirical world has sort of conspired to make illustrative cases again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and not just in the case of, of, of death, right? Uh, I, we have to remember that the same uh, day that those police brutally murdered George Floyd, um, Christian Cooper, an American bird watcher in Central Park, um, asked a white woman, Amy Cooper, no relation, um, to put her dog on a leash. And she called the police with the express, um, you know, intention of endangering this man's life. So you have the empirical world, which is giving us examples of all of these injustices. And basically the excuses for them cease to be persuasive. And so that's why you see a massive shift in public opinion, for example, on whether or not people believe that police treat um, 
Black Americans fairly. Um, most people now don't believe that police treat Black Americans fairly, which is a huge right shift. Now, in my work, I say that social movements, that's their biggest win, right? Their policy wins come after that. But the biggest win is when they are able to define the problem because that opens the world to the solutions that they put forward. Um, and even if they don't get those solutions right away, those are on the table and begin to shape the political possibility, the political environments. And, and to what extent did Black Lives Matter learn from or move away from the strategies used by the civil rights movement in the 1960s? Well, they have been done both, right? Um, uh, in the movement for Black Lives, um, civil rights um, activists and movement workers um, that are still with us are called elders. Um, and one of the things that um, folks in movement learned from that generation of um, Black activists was that um, <laughs> You have to have a politics that is not only revolutionary, but also caring, uh, which is to say that during the kind of um, 20th century liberation movements, anti-war movements, it was thought that what mattered most was the correctness um, and the radicalness of your politics and that your sort of personal health, the, the sort of... Um, the, the way you felt, the health of people around you, the sustainability of organizations, that all of that mattered less um, than the kind of ideals of, of movement. Whereas this movement incorporates into its ideals a notion of care um, that means that we all matter, right? Um, no matter what kind of work we're doing. So they have tried to create spaces um, where uh, people can do the work of liberation long-term. And that, by the way, informs their, um, their view of leadership. That's why there are no kind of centralized leaders, but instead there's a proliferation of leadership building across um, organizations. That's for reasons of sustainability, right? Um, but also it's a smart politically because if you don't have single leaders, they can't be um, decapitated or co-opted either, right? Um, no one person's kind of, um, you know, interests or moral turpitude will take out uh, the entire movement. So uh, there's also an emphasis in terms of political philosophy in a politics of care. And this politics of care is the reason why the movement tries to center people who are furthest from power. So why there's an emphasis, for example, on trans folks, incarcerated folks, poor folks, right? They have a political philosophy that for justice to be achieved, you have to reason from um, the lived experiences, the lives of people who are most impacted by deprivation. And you say, what are the things that we have to do um, to enable, right? To create a capacity for these folks to be able to live in the world um, the way that they want to. Last question from from me. Um, we don't know what's going to happen in the election. Let's let's you know, and and we absolutely are not going to take anything for granted. No. If, if 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 Trump if Trump wins, it's obviously a bad scene to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> let, let's not sort of depress ourselves by talking about that. The other possibility, obviously, is that Biden wins. Yes. Where does the where does this how do you see the role of the movement under um, now? Obviously, the movement began. I think I'm right in saying under Obama. Yes, so, absolutely. so there was a Democratic president uh, mm -hmm. in place. But how do you see the role of the movement under a, an, an elected Democratic president under a Joe Biden presidency? 
I see the role of the movement as um, even more efficacious, honestly. And people in movement, a large portion of whom are involved in um, an electoral justice sort of wing of the movement. So that means that they're involved in getting people registered, getting people to vote, getting people to uh, also run for office, learn how to run campaigns, et cetera, right? Like the movement has been quite busy actually creating an electoral infrastructure that is movement facing and movement serving. So the movement often says, right, people in movement often say as they're doing this electoral justice work is that they're not interested in electoral capture, right? They, they are not going to be um, all of a sudden devotees of Joe Biden's moderate politics. Instead, what they are what are they are electing, right, is um, someone that they can push, right? A target, not a friend. That's what they say, right? Like, who would you prefer your target to be, um, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Um, and the answer is Joe Biden. Well, Diva Woodley, um, we absolutely look forward to your book. Um, we would encourage our listeners to um, to to buy it when it uh, when it comes out. Um, obviously. A lot hinges on what happens uh, next week. Uh, yes, like the survival uh, of the United States. Yes. <laughs> fingers crossed for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. To talk more broadly about Black Lives Matter and social movements, I'm delighted to say that we're joined from Baltimore by Hari Han, who is Professor of Political Science and Faculty Director of the P3 Lab at Johns Hopkins University, where she is also Director of the SNF Agora Institute. Hari, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me today. Tell us a little bit about the P3 Lab and, 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 and what you do in terms of studying activism and movements. Sure. Um, so we call ourselves a P3 lab because we're dedicated to understanding how you make the participation of all people possible, probable, and powerful. So people have to be able to participate, they have to want to participate, and then it actually has to matter. And um, part of the reason why we took that approach is it feels like there's so much work out there trying to understand how we can make it easier for people to participate. But one of the things that we found was that, you know, if you build it, they will not necessarily come. So people have to actually want to participate. And and they have to feel like it actually matters. And that's one of the big challenges that we see right now that is that in so many cases, people feel like they're participating and doesn't matter. And so a lot of what we're trying to understand is how we strengthen the ability of movements and organizations to be able to make people's participation matter. And just give us the three Ps again so we have them in our minds. We want to make people's participation possible, probable, and powerful. In terms of Black Lives Matter, possible, probable, and powerful, is it working and what lessons would we learn from that? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I think that's really exciting about Black Lives Matter is if you think about um, how it moved from a few years ago to being what seemed like on the margins of the political conversation to now really being at the center of it, um, a lot of what that is is the movement from um, taking uh, an, an imagined future and turning it into a reality. And that's fundamentally what movements do. So, you know, I think that, that one of the big challenges for movements is both how do you engage people around this capacity for imagining something different than what they have? And that's part of what is, makes, makes, people's participation more probable, right? It gets them excited about getting involved. But then how do you turn that into a reality? And so then that's where all the work that Black Lives Matter has been doing in communities across the United States on the ground to engage people in more substantive ways that um, is starting to turn that into actual power in the political conversation. Is Black Lives Matter 
um, representative of a trend of people getting more involved in social movements in the past? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, so what, if you look at the data, um, we see that we have more people taking more action now than we did in the past. So, for example, in 2017, right after Trump got elected, there was a huge women's march in the United States. And that was the biggest kind of outpouring at the time by orders of magnitude than anything that we had seen before with the anti-war movements, with the civil rights movements, with a lot of the um, big movements, not only in the United States, but around the world. And part of why that is, is that it's easier than ever before to get people involved now because of all the tools of digital media and, um, and online organizing. So it used to be that if I wanted to have a big rally in, on the mall in Washington, I had to call through a bunch of lists or I had to knock on a bunch of doors and really hit the pavement and get boots on the ground to get people out. But now, um, as we saw at the Women's March, it can be a Facebook post that goes viral and reaches millions more people than we ever were able to before. Now, now we've talked in the past on the podcast about the so-called three and a half percent rule. Erica Chenoweth's analysis that movements that mobilize three and a half percent of the population tend to be successful. Is mobilizing large numbers of people the key to success? Um, or is that is it more complicated than that? And if it is more complicated, what is it in your analysis at P3 Lab uh, that makes social movements successful? Yeah, um, so Erica actually has a great piece that she wrote recently that talks about the way in which the three and a half percent rule is a descriptive, not a prescriptive rule, right? So it's descriptive in the sense that it describes a pattern that we see out in the world, but it's not a replacement for strategy. And I think that's the take that we, um, we take in P3 that in a, in a sense, the challenge is not so much to build critical mass in terms of actually translating the goals of a movement into political power, but the challenge instead is how do you build critical yeast, so to speak, right? So how do you build that core of leaders who have this capacity to transform the entire movement? If you don't have that core of people that can do the strategic work of translating, you know, the millions of actions of people t- coming together um, in a rally or taking action online into actual power um, in conversation with elected officials, with decision makers and other policymakers, then the movement turns out not to have that power. And I think that's the move that we're seeing in Black Lives Matter and a lot of other movements these days. So so, so just talk to us a little bit more about that, because we've got now three P's and a Y. Um, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the yeast, I mean, I think some of your work has talked about what, what we've what I think we call community organizing. So the sort of process of sort of organizing a a kind of proper grassroots movement and we'll come on to the NRA in a a moment. But but just talk to us a little bit more about what this yeast is. Yeah. So here's the here's the kind of underlying logic behind it. Right. So any political movement is fight is fighting an uphill battle. Right. Because they're trying to make change and change is really hard to make. And um, when they're when you're trying to make change, the environment within which you're working, the political environment with your working, within which you're working is necessarily dynamic and, and, and unexpected things are going to happen. So one of the things that we did was we went out and we looked at what are the commonalities across movements that actually have been able to develop power for their people you know, in recent years. And the only thing that was consistent across every single movement is that at some point their power got challenged. Right. They had a plan. They had a strategy that they were going to do and they executed that strategy. And at some point, someone pushes back and says, no, we're not going to do what you want us to do. Right. And that can come from a lot of different places. It can come from 
parliament, it can come from Congress, it can come from a business leader, it can come from all different kinds of places. And the question essentially in whether or not they were able to sort of build power is how they responded in that moment, right? So when your strategy gets challenged, and what are those a range of tools that you have in your toolbox to be able to respond? And if all you have is a Facebook page with millions of people, but you can't actually move them or have any confidence that you'll be able to call them to action again, then in that moment of challenge, you can't respond, right? But if you have not only a Facebook page, but also a set of critical leaders who are actually connected to and in relationship with pockets of people, then you can sit at that negotiating table and say, look, you can challenge my power, but I'm going to bring the force of the people back again, right? And it's that capacity to be able to respond to challenge, which is why we use the metaphor of critical yeast, right? Because it's those leaders connected to and grounded in communities of people on the ground that enables that negotiation for power to actually happen. Now, one of the organisations you have written about, as Ed said, is is the National Rifle Association, the NRA. Talk talk to us about them. They seem to have very outsized power. How, how have they been able to build that? Yeah, so um, the NRA is a really interesting organisation, and I should say part of the reason why I got interested in them is I grew up in Texas, which is um, you know pretty conservative southern state in the United States, and a lot of the kids that I grew up with are NRA members, right? And they're people that are, are members of the organization. And what I saw growing up, I think, is a pattern that we see across a lot of movements, um, which is that people didn't necessarily join the NRA because they were uh, extreme gun ideologues. There are some people who do that for sure, right? But in most cases, what happened was there were people who wanted a place to go and shoot their guns. They needed to get insurance to be able to do that safely. The cheapest place to get insurance is through the NRA. Right. And so then they would go. But then what the NRA was really good at doing was being able to sort of take this pool of people that they captured and then building a sense of belonging and community and identity um, around this notion of being a gun owner. So a fact that I share a lot that sometimes that certainly shocks people in the United States and I think will also shock people across the pond is that there are more gun shops and gun clubs in the United States than there are McDonald's. Right. So if you imagine if you come to the United States and you drive around and think think of all the McDonald's that you see, there's more gunshots and gun clubs. And so what that means is the gun, you know, the NRA has a real presence in the community and lives of so many Americans in a way that we don't necessarily see for a lot of other organizations. Now, I should qualify all that by saying that the NRA is challenged right now. So I think we're in a moment where the power of the NRA is really shifting. But historically, that is definitely a pattern that we have seen. So if you were building a movement, what would what would you learn from the way the NRA has built their support? So one of the things that I think about a lot is this notion that um, I think belonging often comes before belief. And that is, that is a, a challenge, I think, that a lot of movements on the left don't necessarily understand. So the idea is, is that if I'm an environmental movement, then I think, okay, who are the people that I'm going to recruit to my movement? other environmentalists, right? So I assume that I have to sort of find people who believe in and agree with my mission first, right? And then I try to engage them in different kinds of action and progressively more action over time. And I think what the NRA and a lot of other uh, successful movements have understood is that often belonging and belief go hand in hand, right? So if I feel like I am part of a community of people who value me for as a whole person, right, and understand who I am, then often I get drawn into these communities that then shape my political beliefs over time. 
What would that mean for the environmental movement? If, if I mean, it's such an interesting way of putting it, if it's not just about belief, but about belonging. Yeah, well, so for example, one of the big environmental organizations or traditionally, traditionally large environmental organizations in the United States is the Sierra Club, right? And um, the Sierra Club, their mission is enjoy, explore, and protect, right? And one of the things that I could say in terms of like, what does that mean for the environmental movement is that how do they translate the people who join the Sierra Club because of the enjoy mission into the ex- explore and protect mission, right? So a lot of people will come to organize environmental organizations because they want a community of people to go hiking with, because they want a community of people to explore the natural world with, because they want a community of people to, um, you know, look into different urban environments or something like that. And then can that be translated into a commitment for, um, for environmentalism as a political cause overall? Isn't there something very, very important in that, which is this difference between, and you've already sort of spoken to this, but I think it's worth emphasizing, this between mobilizing and organizing? Yeah, so, um, the, so the difference between mobilizing and organizing that we talk about is this idea that the strategy for mobilizing is that you want to get as many people as possible to get involved as, um, as quickly as possible, right? So the strategy is scale, essentially. The, the bigger the number, the larger the number of people, the more likely we are to gain the power that we want. The strategy for organizing, essentially, is that you invest in a group of transformative leaders who are grounded in a set of relationships that build the kind of depth of base over time that we've talked about. And so it's the difference between focusing on attention or commitment, for example. We live in an attention economy, and I think very often it's easy for a movement to get seduced by the idea that the more attention they get, the more powerful they are. But in the end, a lot of times what we find in the research is that the movements that are the most powerful are the ones that have that depth of commitment to be able to underscore the kind of um, – to, to carry forward the attention that they're able to receive. There's there's a quote. I know you've come back to this a few times. Hope is the belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Do social movements help expand our idea of what is possible? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I do this work. You know, um, I, I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Texas. And I think growing up as a daughter of immigrants meant that one of the core lessons I learned, not because anyone ever said the words to me, but because it was just in the backdrop of my life, is that transformation is not only possible, it's what we do as humans, right? We try to remake ourselves, to remake our families, to remake the world around us. And that's fundamentally what I think is at the core of social movements, is they help us imagine a different future and then transform our communities so that we can we can realize that future. And so I feel like a lot of the work that we try to do is figure out how do we make the possible more plausible by better understanding how movements work? Well, look, Hari Han, um, what an inspiring interview. We love the three Ps. We love the why. And the why. And the why. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. So what did you think? Uh, one One of the things I really liked was just the idea that what a movement does is define the problem so you're you're owning the argument and from that you force change from from that comes policy and it's it's not necessarily that a movement should should have all the solutions ready on a shelf but what they should do is push the policymakers to a point where they have to do something about it as and as a name of a movement i found that exciting i also liked the the idea of putting the people furthest away from power at the center 
of a movement. Yeah, that's a really um, good point. And I don't know if this makes me a bit soft, but but what I think you're doing there is relying on empathy. You're relying on if 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 you do that, that people will respond by understanding the the plight or the the story of those people. And um, you know, I, 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 I enjoy that kind of faith in human nature. I mean, there's so much that comes out of this for me. I, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, I remember when I was in America in, I think it was 2015, when Black Lives Matter was just sort of really getting going. And people were saying to me, well, you know, it's it, it's fine, but it's like, what's the demand? You know, is it going to go the way of Occupy? It's just a bit sort of general. And I think that was so wrong because it's provided a frame. So I think that is really interesting, that the notion that you need a – you know, here's my policy program. I mean, that is kind of important, but, but you know, the frame has been important. And I suppose then it's obviously been now translated to, to policy uh, demands. Uh, then the other thing I think is really important, and I, this has come through now in a couple of interviews we've done, I think one we did with the Sunrise Movement a couple of weeks back, is, you know, it's, just, it's partly in this distinction between organising and mobilising that, you know, Social media is really important in get getting people to turn up, you know, at a place for a demonstration and so on. But unless you do the hard yards work of the organising on the ground, the grassroots organising, and that stuff about the National Rifle Association, the NRA, is just mm. absolutely fascinating. Mm. You know, because everyone thinks the NRA, or they've just got lots of money, they pay off members of Congress, and then they say they won't do anything. No doubt the money of the NRA has an impact. But this grassroots belonging belief belonging stuff that hari was talking about and i think obviously black lives matter has been doing a lot of organizing work so i think i think there is something really really interesting about the the the, the kind of method in this that it's got to be it's got to be methodical and strategic not simply um you know a sort of flash in the pan reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. 
Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you want to share your thoughts on this week's episode, if you've been inspired by the way movements are being built, if you've got a movement that you're involved in that you want to tell us about, if you've got ideas for future episodes, you think this would be a good person for them to talk to, we would love to hear from you. Email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Dot com. Ed, this this was an interesting one. Uh, the on. subject line was MS, not CNA. I think I made a rather unkind remark about you looking like man at CNA. Um, and we received this from it's Abigail. It's not like you to make an unkind kind remark about my clothes. I think people in glass houses shouldn't be throwing stones. You have been known to clothes shame people yourself. I've done my shirt shaming in my time. You have. Um, Anyway, we received this from Abigail Campbell with that subject line. And she says, I kept this letter from Ted Miliband and Godfrey Beneza given to all candidates coming in for interviews at Corpus Christi College in December of 1990. Now, Ted Miliband, as we learned from your uh, um, former co-student, um, Sindhu V, that was that's what you called yourself when you were at university. It was the name that stuck. It was. A tutor said to me in the first week I was there, I gather you like to be called Ted. And they said it in front of everybody. And so then people started calling me Ted. And it was sort of, well, I was kind of, I suppose I wanted to be nice. And I kind of just (laughs) thought, well, I I thought, well, I can't really fight this. And so I quite like, yeah, it was funny. I called myself, so I was Ted for... For three years. And anyone who knows you from that period still calls you Ted. Yeah, they get very confused, really. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she, she sent it. She saved a, a letter that was co-written. And you, um, and you even sign it, Ted. So it's not even that you would just know. Yeah, that's Ted. so weird, you, isn't you've it? You've got a signature with, a, with the T in it, which is weird. You've, I know that um, is really weird. And it's dis- dated a December 1990, and it's Dear Interviewee, Welcome to Corpus, and uh, on, on it goes. And it's giving people advice on these interviews. It says the main thing to remember is don't worry. You may well be a bit anxious, but remember all interviewers realise that the process can be a daunting one. Good luck, with much love. And then it's co-signed from Godfrey, who in brackets writes the one with the multicoloured sweatshirts, and then Edward ted milliband and in in brackets you write the one with the button-down shirts and the mns cardigan so you were famed for your mns knitwear at university yeah i don't think i was a sort of i don't think i was a hipster uh those cardigans uh, probably would you know if, if you'd kept them you could probably sell them to some hipster vintage shop now well i probably have kept them somewhere then you should sell them <laughs> They were those sort of blue cardigans. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, or better still, start wearing them again. Are you aware of Normcore? No. It's this style of sort of hipster dress. I think it was from two or three years ago, maybe a bit longer now, where hipsters would dress in the most normal, borderline suburban way they could find. And that, that became like a fashion and it's a trend in its own right, Normcore. You do, could be the king know- of Normcore. 
Do you, don't, I mean, I know this is a thing that old people say, but isn't it funny when somebody says 30 years ago and you think, how can it possibly be 30 years ago? Yeah. And then you have a very strange sense of sort of time because at one level it feels very, very distant and at another level it doesn't feel distant at all. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's that's uh, that's ageing for you. This comes from Chris Bowen, uh, who has emailed us before and subject is foreign correspondence. G'day, Ed and Jeff. A while ago, you said on air that it might be a good idea to have foreign correspondence for reasons to be cheerful. I thought it was a great idea and would happy to be the honorary Australian correspondent. I would have thought it could happen in any number of ways, e.g. at the end of the episode um, about something else. You could receive brief updates on current events in Country X. Alternatively, every so often, you could do a special episode on events around the world. I'll leave it with you. Also, in relation to podcasts around the world, inspired by reasons to be cheerful, like new podcast by Benoit Amon, I co-host a progressive podcast in Australia called Rekindling Hope, which is also inspired by RTBC. Oh. All the best. Chris Bowen, Shadow Minister for Health, member for McMahon in the Australian House of Representatives. I, I mean, that's good, isn't it? It's fantastic. I also love the idea of the occasional episode where we, we do a whistle-stop tour of the world, like it's the Eurovision and we're going round the judges. We, we, I mean, we are a franchise. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. And our cheerful person this week is the author of the new book, The Secret Political Advisor The Unredacted Files of the Man in the Room Next Door. Ed, I know that you are incredibly excited about this because this is giving you more credibility with your sons than anything we've ever, ever done before. Than ever before. The, the kudos <laughs> is Sam and Daniel, 9 and 11. They can, I mean, they, I took, it took me a lot to convince them that I was actually going to be talking to the real Michael Spicer. They are absolutely mega, mega, mega fans. Michael, talk to us about how all this came about, because because it's been a relatively meteoric rise to 50 million yeah. gazillion downloads, yeah, hasn't it? It has. The, the strange thing, I think, is, is that I have been operating pretty much under the radar for about 25 years. I've been doing... <laughs> I know, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've just been on the periphery really doing little bits and pieces acting jobs comedy jobs and twitter was a great way of providing me with a platform where i didn't have to just rely on um like the bbc and 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 production companies in general to 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 view my work so i had this platform and i had these had a small amount of followers who like what i do so i would just do sketches and and see what took really some things people liked some things people didn't and um, I saw the room next door as just another one of the sketches that I do. And um, when I did the first one, that was uh, Boris and his model buses. And I saw it go viral and I thought, oh, that's nice. Because I've, I've gone viral in the past and I thought, well, that's nice. That'll get me a few extra followers. But it just kept going and going and going. And what gave you the idea for 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 the man in the room next door? Boris Johnson did, Ed. <laughs> because of that interview? Yeah. Boris Johnson um, gave the impression that he was expecting somebody to give him a perfectly yes. formed human response. Because yes. I don't think Boris Johnson is capable of 
of those of answering those sort of questions because I think he's got a very sort of I think he's got two sides to his brain that are struggling all the time saying should you just say what you want to say about this should you lie what should you do and and he was just umming and erring all the way through it and that's when I thought it just popped into my head oh yeah it really does seem like there there could be an advisor next door frantically trying to get him the best um, answer for that it's not exactly a failure to answer the question, is it? Mm. It, it? It's more, it's more what sort of haphazard answers, sort of answers that seem sort of freewheeling all over the shop. Yeah, you know. No, I think I think you're I think you're right. There are there are there are politicians that will go in a different direction and try to avoid what you what you want them to say. And so, you know, you can get in there and say, well, you know, just just answer the question, you know, tell the truth, try to be a human being. (laughs) That's essentially what what it boils down to is the fact that people do not relate to politicians because they don't seem human. They don't answer questions like a human. That's because we're not. Because you're not. I mean, we all know that exactly not. (laughs) So what we need to do is kind of have people in charge who kind of, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 even this morning when you when you look at in, uh, the people doing the interviews, doing the rounds today, you, you hear people say, politicians say, um, well, we've been very clear on this. Well, you haven't. <laughs> that, you that's haven't. always a sign that you haven't been clear you if you say that. Clear, in, yeah. in my in my long and bitter experience, we've been very clear. Is a is you're you're, fi- yeah. you're fighting for time as you yes. try and think about what the hell you're going to say. Yes, indeed. And the fact that politicians think that we don't know that is 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 infuriating because they obviously continue to say it. They'll say things like, "Well, we've been very clear on this, and we've been very clear on this all week, and we continue yeah. to be clear." Because you you haven't actually said anything yet, but you've eaten up a lot of valuable time. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what the other favourites are. We've been very clear about this. I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) You see, I think there's problem thinking about it, and this is again, this is just my speculation. But there's the bizarre interview, and then there's the sort of repetitive strain injury interview, which I must say I've done a number of in my time. Like the, I think one of my children's favourites is the Pretty Patel yeah. counterterrorism. Now, now, I suppose if she hadn't kept saying counterterrorism mm. measures against counterterrorism mm. rather than measures, if if she had just been saying measures against terrorism, it would have been much less funny, wouldn't it? But yeah. but there was there was something about that interview which was just the the repetition. Well, the, I suppose it was the repetition of something that was so, again, you know, seemed a bit like a very old thing to say. Mm. Well, she, I mean, another thing about that interview is that she didn't actually say anything at all. So she was saying, (laughs) I announced a very clear package of measures last week. And tomorrow, that's what she was, that's literally what she said. (laughs) And tomorrow I'll announce more measures in addition to the clear package of measures (laughs) I mentioned last week. And then he just says, uh, towards the end of this two minutes of nonsense, he says, can you mention what any of these measures are? And she says, I'm not going to preempt my speech on the measures. <laughs> well, what are you talking about then? What are you talking about? Why are you here? It's nonsense. And then, of course, she said counterterrorism eight times, which is just perfect for me. And did you see that and immediately just think, OK, that's that's just perfect? Yes, I did. And I, and, and I tweeted and I tweeted, imagine being a comedy writer and 70% of your material is already written 
and your co-writer doesn't want to take any credit for it. <laughs> it's a perfect you, position to be in. I just joined the dots. Talk to us about the, the, the book then, The Secret Political Advisor. How long has this been a making? What what were you, you know, very keen that you didn't want it to be? What did you what did you want it to be? Well, I didn't want it to be just a book of the sketches because it's that's lazy isn't it and i wanted and i and i did you know did think about how could i bring him out of the room next door how could i develop him um give him his own little universe so i wrote the book uh with the idea that you're in his world and that we've kind of hacked into his phone and his 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 emails and his diary entries and, and all of that sort of thing and he's like whatsapp messages with colleagues and and all of that and it's it's like a, a an accumulation of all that data over the last four years since the since the very beginning of uh theresa may's premiership which was you know f- fairly disastrous and, and and perfect for my character to be at the center of that sort of center of all of that storm of brexit then trump then election then covid um Oh, you know, one day it would be really nice to have a comedy career that, where there wasn't some sort of horrible apocalypse going on in the background <laughs> to see if I could do it, you know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's, that's what the book's about. Do you ever think about killing off the, the man in the room next door? Well, I probably, I probably will at some point, or at least just take a break from him and bring him back from time to time because there are other things that I want to do for sure. And I am worried about his, his shelf life. I do hope, just to end on my kids, I do hope you're not going to kill off the character because my younger son did want me to ask. Mm. Because the, in one of you, I think it's the last video you uploaded, you meet your evil identical yeah. twin. Yeah, I do. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. He, be- he he said to me warily last night, oh, I think he's, I think he's, <laughs> I think he might have done his last one because he met his evil identical twin. Yes. And, you know, yeah. But, but y- 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 I can sort of reassure him ish. Yeah, you can ish. Um, I, I think that it would be easy to kind of just close the book on him, but you know, partic- particularly with 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 Trump, like days away, perhaps from um, being removed from office, um, it seems like a, a good time to to end it. However, I can't resist the urge to do one if there's a particularly catastrophic, you know, interview, press conference, or whatever. Um, you know, of of the level of Boris Johnson talking about artificial intelligence at the UN and not having an iota of an idea yeah, of what he was talking about. If something like that happens again, then I'll, I would have to do it. I mean, my guess is that the politicians will keep providing you with material, Michael. Yes, I, I think so. Don't you too. think? Don't you think, Jeff? I think so. I don't think we're quite about to enter the world where there's no material no. Um, for for the secret advisor next door. Yeah, I, 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 I'm agreement. Well, listen, you've made my kids day, week, year. <laughs> um, uh, people should go out and buy your book. Uh, they can keep watching you, um, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, on Twitter and on social media. Uh, Michael Spicer, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, we're in the outro. Well, look, as part of this sort of mad fitness regime, inspired by you, I'm I'm sort of on my way to buy an electric bike, I think. So you've decided to go electric and not acoustic? I test drove one at the weekend, and last weekend, and I think providing that I kind of have the willpower to 
you know do the manual when I can. Well, this is exciting. Will you get it into? Will you get it quickly? Because of course Halloween is coming up. People won't be able to go trick or treating. But maybe you could ride around your neighbourhood dressed as I don't know Herman Munster on your electric bike, just giving people a bit of Halloween cheer. That's really nice idea. Um, I love the monsters. We haven't discussed the monsters. I don't think so. Do you, do you feel that it's a bit of a blur and oasis situation where you're a fan of either the Munsters yeah. or the Adams family? Well, I was about to say that I was one of the, I was about to say blur, as in they blur slightly together. But don't you think it's quite interesting that there's quite a lot of good sitcoms like that from the 1970s, American sitcoms from the 1970s? Yeah, but, but maybe even 60s, the Munsters. But is, 60s. is, is it going to be a Flintstone situation where the worst thing ah, you could do is go and look it up on YouTube? Maybe I should go and look up the monsters this weekend. Eugene recently has got into Scooby-Doo. There's a new oh. CGI version of Scooby-Doo, which he likes watching, so I've got to show him some of the old... <laughs> Very good. Reggie. Um, so, and, and I'll tell you who else crops up in this film is Dick Dastardly and Muttley. Oh, we love Dastardly and Muttley, the wacky races. Yeah. We watched um, a Scooby-Doo recently, actually. Um, and, and and my kids really liked it. Yeah, Gene, Gene loved it. Every night he wants to watch 10 minutes of it before he goes to bed. I feel like you and I have a very Shaggy and Scooby-like dynamic between the two of us. And of course they were big fans of sandwiches, weren't they? No. <laughs> Hang on. Shaggy and Scooby dynamic. So am I Shaggy or, or, or am I Scooby? I think you would be Scooby just by dint of the fact that you've been doing these excellent Scooby-Doo impersonations these last few minutes. Yeah, maybe you'd be a good Shaggy. Zoiks. Uh, Zoiks. Oh, honestly, like, if anyone wants us on sort of cartoons of the 1970s <laughs> and 80s, let's thank our guests, Diva Woodley and Hari Han. And the fantastic Michael Spicer. Emma Caution produces our podcast, The Research is done by Joel Pierce, who is aided in this by Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC and, uh, and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance, and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been ooh. He would have got away with it if it hadn't <laughs> been for you pesky kids. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.